I was running around and forgot it. Um, so while you're turning there, two things, just uh, preliminary things. Um, first off, so this week, some of you know that I was uh, very thankful to be able to go to a conference uh, in Cleveland. The, the session sent me, and I'm so thankful for that. Um, I just want to share one thing with you. While we were there, uh, there was 1,500 pastors there. It was this huge auditorium. Uh, and, and as Denise was playing uh, the offertory, it made me think of this. Uh, the, the best part of the week, the preaching was great, but the best part of the week was the singing. Uh, and at one point during the week, we were singing, holy, holy, holy. 1,500 pastors from all different kind of denominations. I may have been the only ARP guy there. I'm, I'm confident I was the only ARP guy there. Um, I, I, there was very few Presbyterians there, surprisingly. Uh, but uh, various backgrounds. And as we, as we sang, holy, holy, holy together. I thought of Revelation chapter 4. I thought of Isaiah chapter 6. And those angels gathered around the throne. God's people gathered there, singing to him, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Friends, what, what I got to experience this week, and I wish you all could have been there with me, and what we experience even now is a taste. It's a taste of the reality of what we're going to get to experience that day when we see Jesus face to face, when we gather as his people around his throne. And so I thank you for that opportunity to go and to be a part of that. Uh, the second thing that I realized as, as I finished praying there is I didn't acknowledge our mothers in, our, in my prayer, and so I apologize for that. But let me, let me read this, and then we'll pray, and I'll try to remedy that, okay? So let's, pray. let's uh, read this together. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... Great passage for Mother's Day, huh? Um, wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Who does not bear, he, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he be able with 10,000 to meet he who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today in this time uh, where we gather around your word. Uh, and We pray that you would meet with us. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for what this passage is going to remind us of. And Lord, we come today on, on a Mother's Day where we recognize uh, the, the things that our mothers have done for us, and we're certainly thankful for that. Uh, but now as we come to your word, Lord, we're reminded uh, that the most important thing in our lives is you. As we, as we come to your word, as Ben has reminded us, we come to the one who even if we have not had good earthly mothers, and some people have not had that, we can come to a God 
who promises to love us with that sort of love. Just as a mother loves her children. So, God loves us. So we rejoice in Your presence. We ask now, we're needy as we come to Your Word. Every single one of us, whether we admit it or not, we have needs on our hearts, needs that we are even going unacknowledged. And so we pray that You would be pleased to, to make this book, make this Word live to us so that we might see our Savior. We ask these things in His name. Amen. When cutting costs leads to ruin... Now, Bill said that other was supposed to be my sermon, but I'm sorry, that's not going to be the case. <laughs> it, 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 we'll, we'll work through it. When cutting costs leads to ruin. Uh, well, this morning we, we do, we come to this passage that seems to me uh, to be one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. Uh, now, I say that not in terms of its clarity, not in terms of its language. You know, this is not one of those theological passages that, that are debated of whether what, what exactly the Greek means or anything like that. No, it's, it's clear enough to us, uh, but what I mean is that it's difficult in terms of its application, right? As Jesus lists here, what following him will cost his disciples, what they must be willing to give up for his sake, we can't help but be surprised. We can't help but maybe even be shocked by what he demands, so much so that I think almost immediately as we read these words, we begin to, to try to, to soften them, right? We begin to try to find ways that maybe we can navigate around just exactly what Jesus is saying to us. In other words, we try to find ways to cut the cost. Now, many of you are business people, and those of you who aren't, those of us who aren't, uh, even still, we'll understand this because we're consumers uh, and we live in a, an economic climate where cutting costs it seems to happen everywhere around us, right? Uh, no matter where we go, we seem to run into these things, whether it's, it's new products that are made cheaper and are not as good. We all fuss about the way things don't last anymore, right? Uh, maybe it's uh, uh, different ways, new technology, new ways to do things that's supposed to be cheaper, it may be most obvious to us, at least in our time, it's been ways to reduce the workforce, right? How many of us go to Walmart and we just fuss because we got to stand in that self-checkout line and there's 16 aisles open and nobody's working? You know what I'm talking about. Don't act like you don't know. You fuss with me. But the point is, is that everywhere we go, it seems that, that people are trying to cut costs. Now, the motivation behind that, obviously, is to try to increase profit. And look... Whatever side you're on, uh, that may be a good thing. You know, profit is not necessarily a bad thing if it's done the right way. Uh, but we also know that oftentimes these cost-cutting measures, they can be very dangerous, can't they? Uh, how, many, how many people, how many mistakes have been made because they were trying to cut costs? Uh, how many customers have been alienated because costs were trying to be cut? How many, uh, how many ventures have ultimately failed in an attempt to avoid costs that were really unavoidable? Yes, there are times where cutting costs might lead to more profits, but there are also times where cutting costs or even a failure to account for all the costs can lead to financial ruin. Lead to financial ruin. Well, friends, what I want to submit to you this morning is that though our temptation is to want to soften Christ's words here, 
Though we immediately begin to try to work our way around this, to do so will only lead us to complete and utter ruin. If we make an attempt, if we try to cut these costs that Jesus gives us here, then he's going to make it very clear that we cannot be his disciple. Yes, these demands are great. They are great, and there is no way around that. But they are also unavoidable. They are the all-consuming cost of following Christ. And so today, whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the thousandth time, I want you to try to account for all of these costs. We must ask, am I willing, even now, to give up all things to follow Jesus to the very end? put it more succulently, to put it more succinctly maybe, as we have said very many times in this study of Luke, is Jesus worth it? That's the question before us. That's the question before each of us today, and that is the eternal question that every single one of us must ask. And so, let's look at this passage together today, and let's consider when cutting costs leads to ruin. First, I want you to notice here the terms of discipleship. The terms of discipleship. Now before we just jump right into it, let me remind you that all of this comes on the heels of that great parable of the great banquet that Jesus gave us last week. And you remember there, the man had made this banquet, he had prepared it, and when the time came, he had sent out the invitations already, but when the food was ready, he sent them all out again, his servants. And when he went to the people he had invited, what did he find? They all had excuses, didn't they? You know, some were buying land, some were buying cattle, some had just married a wife. Whatever it was, they, they had excuses. Now, it's hard to tell if these excuses were legitimate or if they were really just that excuses to get out of these things. But what is clear from the passage is that ultimately none of these folks really wanted to come to this banquet. None of them really wanted to be there with the master. Now, that's important for us to keep in mind because clearly Jesus or Luke or however this worked out, the Holy Spirit, obviously, uh, followed up that banquet story with this cost of discipleship because it, it gets right to the heart of the Pharisees' problem, right? It cuts right to the issue that they always had. They wanted to do it their way, though they had God's word right in front of them, though they had Jesus in front of them. They wanted to do it their way. And so it cuts to the heart of their concerns, but I want you to also notice that it cuts to the heart of the concerns of other people as well. Notice as this passage begins that the audience has changed somewhat. It says, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. Now this is a familiar scene in Luke's gospel, right? Over and over again, what you see is these great crowds that are following Jesus around. He is teaching them. He is giving them his his word. And it's always interesting to me to consider uh, the demographic of these, these great crowds. Certainly, there were those there like the disciples, those there like the, the women that followed Jesus and his disciples around, who were true followers, who really loved the Lord and were wanting to follow wherever he might lead. There were also there, some there, surely, who really wanted to know more about the Lord, who wanted to, to know about what he was saying. They were really interested in the salvation that he was offering. We can imagine, too, that in a crowd that large, 
that, that given all that Jesus has done up until this point, there were also people there for a lot of reasons that were not necessarily very uh, concerned about Jesus, right? Uh, surely there, there were people there uh, who just wanted to show. You know, they had heard about the great miracles. They had heard about the, the debates Jesus had been in. And they just showed up to see some of that. That they wanted to see a fight. They, they wanted to see a miracle that Jesus could do. Others surely showed up because they had physical needs. You know, Jesus has gotten in the habit here in this gospel of healing people who had physical needs, right? The, the blind receive sight. The, the lame leap and walk. Uh, he, he has done these things over and over. And so surely there were those gathered who wanted their physical needs cared for. He, remember when he fed the 5,000, what did he tell the crowd that gathered? He said, you're just here because you want to get fed, right? You just want to, to be fed like these others were fed. And so there were some there that, that were like that also. And there were surely some uh, that were following him like the Pharisees uh, to, to catch him, to accuse him, to enter into debate. Now my point is, is that it's a very diverse group. It's interesting to note that, that Jesus is speaking to a group like that when he turns around and begins to say, if you're going to be my disciple... This is what it's going to cost. Surely, surely the great majority of those people were not prepared to pay those costs. They, they were not uh, expecting Jesus to say exactly what, he is, what it is that he says here. Friends, that's important for us to keep in mind. This group is not all that different than, than churches all over the world today. Maybe even churches right here in New Albany, Mississippi. Maybe even this one. I, I'm just, this is the reality of Scripture. The truth is, is the church is full of people with all different sorts of motivations. Some come for the show. If you came to the Presbyterian church for the show, I'm sorry, you, you came to the wrong place. Um, some come to, to try to accuse Jesus. They, they come to try to see where he could be wrong. Some come because they simply want him to do something like Santa Claus or like a, a genie in a bottle. They just want something from him. Friends, if you're here for those reasons today, hear now the terms of discipleship. Hear what Jesus says to you in this passage. First, he gives us three terms. First, he says you must hate your own father mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. It's verse 26. Now, you want to talk about an opening line. <laughs> you know, they teach you in, in preaching classes that, that you want your introduction to grab their attention. Well, this has done it, right? It, it, when Jesus said these words, I don't know, I don't care what anybody else was doing, they stopped. And they were listening to everything that he had to say. It also probably alienated or offended three-quarters of the people who were there, right? And it may do that right now. It may alienate us. It may offend us. Could Jesus, who has championed God's law at every turn, could He who said, you must love your neighbor as yourself, you must love your own enemy, can He who has, who has said, you must keep the, the commandments, the fifth commandment, can He really be saying now, you must hate all of these people. Don't you naturally want to do that? We, we talk, Ben talked about that in his children's sermon, how mothers, for the most part, naturally want to, to care for their children. 
See, now saying that, that we have to, to turn against that? Surely this is a misquote. Surely this is a contradiction in what Jesus has said before. Well, if that's hard to swallow, then secondly, he says, not only do you hate these folks, but you're also supposed to hate who? Your own life. You're supposed to hate your own life. Now look, I know we live in a time where people are, are often very self-deprecating. We, we throw these things around very lightly. But what is usually our most natural instinct in life? It's self-preservation, right? Uh, one of my favorite things as a baseball coach is, you know, uh, you, you teach your batters that if they're in the batter's box and the ball is coming at you, you do this, right? And you just take it. You just, because yeah, you get on base for free. It's an easy base, right? Now, it's going to be painful, but it's an easy base. Now, it doesn't matter how many times we say that. Once or a thousand. Every time that ball is coming at them, guess what they do? This right there. They're getting out of the way. Almost every time. Except Sam, who gets hit like 27 times a tournament. But everybody's jumping out of the way. Now, why is that? They know in their minds, hey, I'm supposed to stand in here and take this. Self-preservation kicks in, Right? I've got to protect myself. This is going to hurt. I can't do this. That's, the, that's true for all of us. We want to protect ourselves physically, emotionally, socially, in every way. And so how can Jesus expect us to do this, to hate our own lives? Again, surely, surely he's, he's, He doesn't mean this. Surely He's got this wrong. Well, there's number three. And it's this familiar refrain that, that we hear so often. He says, if you're going to be my disciple, you must bear his own cross and come after me. Bear his own cross. Now look, after one and two to us, this doesn't sound all that daunting. But it's only because we are not familiar with the, the, the horrors of crucifixion. It's because we don't have to deal with that on a daily basis and see people die in this way. Now, I'm sure all of you know what, what that's about, and so I won't rehearse it all now. But it is a terrible, horrible, suffering way to die. It is, it is a way to die that nobody would volunteer for sanely. Nobody would say, hey, today I'm going to go to the cross. Nobody certainly would say, hey, I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to carry it every day in following this guy. Horrible, horrible way to die. Those are the terms. Well, friends, if this was an advertisement, we would say it's not a very good one, right? If Jesus, if his goal is to gain followers here, then, then this is not a very good way to do it. This doesn't seem like the sort of thing that, that anyone would want to sign up for. And we need to recognize that at least that's part of the point. That's part of what Jesus is trying to do here. He's trying to sift the wheat and the tares, right? He's trying to say, hey, look at your heart. Are you all in? Are you really willing to follow me? These folks needed to be shocked into the realization that Christ demands everything. There's not one thing that we can keep for ourselves. That we can hold over to the side and say, Lord, this is mine and everything else is yours. No, everything falls under His headship. Everything falls under His reign. Following Him means that He is the King. He must take first place. 
And he wants everyone in attendance to see that. Not only that, not only must we be willing to give up all things, but in saying carrying your cross, he's saying we must also be willing to endure all things. Now, I think I've said this before, and so we won't spend a lot of time here, but one commentator talks about this idea of cross-bearing. You know, often, even in our culture, we'll say, well, that's just my cross to bear. And he makes the point that when we say those things, we usually mean things out in the world like our job or like physical issues or whatever it may be. And that, there may be some truth to that, but that's not what Jesus has in mind here. What he has in mind here is the cross we bear for his sake. Those things that come to us because we profess his name. The, the hardships, the trials, the persecution that certainly these people will face. That's what bearing our cross is about. He says, you're going to have to endure a lot of things for my name. Are you willing to go all the way? Again, those are the terms. Secondly, in this passage, you notice enduring in discipleship. Now, in case we think we can negotiate here, or in case we think that, that we, this is sort of a one-time payment, and then we're done, we like those kind of payments, right, that we can just get it over with. In case we think that that's what we have here, and we can just go scot-free, Christ encourages us to count the cost not only today, but for the long haul. And he does it here with these two illustrations. Now, the first one comes from the, the world of, of uh, building houses, building structures. And some of you may have done that recently. And you can kind of relate to what this story is about, right? Maybe you started building a house and COVID hit and things have really slowed down. And I want you to recognize that what Jesus is talking about here is not some factors outside of our control that happen. But what he's saying is you better count the cost that you have in front of. You better count that you have enough right here, right now to see it through all the way to the end. He says, don't be like that man who didn't count them at all, who didn't even consider how much money he had. And then he starts building the house, the tower, and all he's left with is is a nice little foundation. There's no tower to be built on it. Failed to count the cost. Secondly, you notice in this image of a king at war. He says, what king will, will go to war and not count to see how many soldiers he has? Not to see if he can go up against the army that's coming. Surely you would, right? Wouldn't be a very good king or general if he didn't. If he just put his men in harm's way just for no reason whatsoever. So no, you've got to count. You've got to see. And, and if you don't have enough, you better start making peace right now. Again, the point of all of this is fairly straightforward, isn't it? As one commentator says, Jesus wants to make sure we don't make the same mistakes in our Christian lives. He has told us it will cost everything to follow him. Those are the terms. And so now we need to decide if we can and are willing to pay that price. Again, not just today, but over the long haul. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3, right? That's what that whole chapter is about. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I had it all. And then at the end of it all, what does he say? He says, I count it all as lost for the sake of knowing Jesus. And then he immediately says, not that I have already attained it yet, but I press on. I keep going. I keep counting the cost. I keep realizing there's going to be more. I've got to keep going. That's, that's what's before us here. Now let's pause. And let me ask you, 
Before we move to the final point, have you counted these costs of following Jesus? Clearly, clearly, this is not the Christianity as it, it's not Christianity as it is so often portrayed in our world today. You know, a life of ease where we get all that we could ask for, all we want. If we just believe hard enough and we, we do the things that we're supposed to do, then we'll be, live a blessed life. That may happen, but it's not going to be because that's the way Jesus has said it's going to be, right? If anything, he has said it's going to be opposite of that. That it's going to cost us everything we have to follow him. We must bring it all, all that we love all that we care for, our very lives, we must bring it to the foot of the cross. And we must leave it there. One of the great scenes in Pilgrim's Progress, my favorite scene, if you know Pilgrim's Progress, well, if you don't, I, can't, I don't have time to explain it to you, but you remember Christian, is, he's got the pack on his back, and he's walking, and he sees the cross, and the pack falls off. But where does it fall? It falls into the grave, Right? It falls into Jesus' grave. It falls in with the Savior. It all lays there. Have we counted these costs? Are we laying our lives at the foot, at the feet of Jesus? That's the question before us today. That's the big question. Are we willing? Is, Is there anything more important than Him? Now, in order to answer that question, in order to answer it honestly, I need to say to you that he's worth it. I need to say to you that that as you read through Scripture, that there are two glaring things that, that stand out to us. First, the reason why it has to be this way The reason why there is no other way than to give up all things for Him is because Jesus knows that's the only way we'll ever truly live. What do our hearts always do? They create idols out of everything. Out of our jobs, out of our sports, out of our money, out of our families. That's the point He's making right now. We make idols out of our families, out of our own lives. But guess what? None of those things will satisfy us. Those things in the end will either hurt us, they will leave us, they will let us down, they will be gone. Something will happen, right? We know this to be true. That's the reality of living in this world. And so how can we live with any confidence? How can we live the way that God really made us to live? There's one way. Just give it all up for Jesus. It's put it all at His feet, knowing that He can care for it all, that He's going to take care of it all. And we look simply and wholly to Him. That's number one. That's why He's worth it. Because there's no other way. Secondly, He is worth it. Because what He calls us to give up in this passage, friends, is what He has given up for you and I. Jesus is not calling us to terms that he is not familiar with himself. Who is it that took up his cross? Who is it that suffered the loss of all things? Who is it who cried from the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not you and I. 
Oh, it was Jesus, right? This, this path he gives us, these terms he gives us, those are his terms. Not just in word, but in action and in deed. He's calling us to a life of imitation. He's doing what Paul does in Philippians chapter 2. And have this mind in yourself who is also in Christ Jesus. Who though he existed in the form of God. Did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. That's it. He emptied himself. That's what he's calling us to do for his sake, right? Empty ourselves so that we might find our all and all in him. So that we might walk to the very end with him. These are the terms. These is endearing, endearing to the end. And then thirdly and finally in this passage, I want you to notice the, the consequences of bland discipleship. The consequences of bland discipleship. Now remember, our title this morning is when cutting cost leads to ruin. And that's certainly how this passage ends. It's not, it's not a, a very hopeful note, uh, but it's the, what God has given us. Uh, he says, he compares our Christian lives to, to salt, He says, as long as salt has its flavor, it's useful. But as soon as it loses that flavor, what what good is it anymore? He says, it's no good. He said, it's only good, not even good for the soil. It's not even good for the manure pile. All it can be is, is thrown out. Well, in the same way, a disciple who will not give his or her all for Jesus, who will not submit themselves to his lordship over their lives, one who will not count all these costs again and again, they are worth very little indeed. If, if Jesus did not say this, I would not say it to you. I wouldn't say it to you. But it's what he says. It's what he says as, as clearly as it can be. He is the only way. Giving up all that we have for him is the only way. The truth is, as we try to wrap this up, is that w- without him, we recognize that this is going to be difficult, right? It's going to be difficult anyway. Uh, but we recognize that, that without his work in our hearts, that it's going to be all but impossible for us to do what Jesus calls us to do here. And yet again, the hope of the gospel is that he, by the power of his spirit, comes into our lives. And he does over and over and over again show us how to live in this way. The truth is, and I haven't done a very good job of saying this up until this point purposefully, because I think we need to feel the weight of this passage. But the truth is, is that he is kind and he is gracious. And that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And that when we fail in giving ourselves over to him completely over and over and over again, Jesus' blood avails for each, each and every one of us that are trusting in him. Now, that's not a reason for us to step back and say, you know what, Lord, I'm just going to kick my feet up and I'm just going to walk through this life and hope it all works out in the end. No, we're striving. We're running a race. But the truth is, is that apart from Jesus, we will never give ourselves wholly and completely the way that he calls us to do right here. He is the only one that can work this out in our heart and in our lives. And so as we end, let's submit ourselves to him. That's, that's, that's the only option we have. That's, that's his point. The only place we have to go now is to the cross.
the only place we have to go is to this great Savior. That's it. If nothing else will do it, if nothing else will redeem us, he is the only safe route to take. And so knowing that grace, come today. Bow before this Savior. And then as you leave, leave knowing that, that this Redeemer is worthy of presenting your body as a living sacrifice, as a reasonable act, a joyful act of worship. Go out and praise this great King as we pray together. Father, as we, as we pause here in these moments, Lord, I pray that, that what I've said, that, that you would sift it, Lord, that, that you would remove the things that would not be helpful to us, and that you would apply with, with the full force and weight of your spirit, of your power, the things that, that are true and right. Lord, clearly this passage is one we need to hear, this one our world needs to hear. We're so content in this world. We're so content with our stuff. We've got it so good, and we praise you for that. But it causes us to, to live Christian lives that are so lackadaisical. Lord, we're just, we just go through the motions. And yet what is clear here is that that's, that's not, it's not an option. It's not what you call us to. You call us to be all in. And so, Lord, we confess, we need your grace. We need your mercy to lead us to that end. Our hearts long and love many, many things. We pray that we would love Jesus more than all, uh, that he would stand as the king, that he would stand as the head of, of our whole lives, and that we would joyfully submit to him. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to throw you a curveball. Uh, we're going to sing hymn.